this is Amy Hill. Thanks for tuning in to Amy on the Hill, a podcast born out of Jesus's teaching in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, which says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Today we're continuing our study of the Gospel of Mark and Timothy Keller's book, Jesus the King. To get us started, as always, I'm going to open us up in prayer. If you're driving or in a public place, if you can, just prepare your heart for a minute wherever you are so we can ask God to work in and through our time today. Dear Lord, we come to you in Jesus' name and ask that you would continue the good work you've started in us. Do what only you can do. There's no formula we can apply. There aren't 12 steps. We can only cry out to you and ask you to work. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on you. You're giving us desires for you, God, and we thank you for that. We thank you for how though we can't see you, we are so aware that we are being changed by you. We might be fumbling through this, but you're giving us an increased desire to know you, to love you more, to trust you, and to serve you. You're giving us a heart that wants to love those around us, even if we don't do it perfectly. We want to reflect you. We want to glorify you. We want to rest in your finished work, and we know this isn't of us. We know this is a work of your spirit. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. And please continue the good work you've started in us. Philippians 1.6 says that we can be confident that you, the one who began a good work in us, will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Lord, 1 Corinthians 1.8 says you will sustain us until the end. Psalm 138.8 says you will fulfill your purpose for us. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. Our hope and our trust is in you. When we think we'll never get this or we'll never comprehend this or we'll never be able to live this, We'll never have victory in an area of our life. Redirect our eyes, Father. Redirect our hope to you, the one who began a good work in us, who will carry it on to completion. And we pray these things with boldness and with authority because we pray these things in the mighty and matchless name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Okay, so this week we read Mark chapters 6 and 7 from the Bible, and from Tim Keller's book, Jesus the King, we read chapters 7 and 8. Chapter 7 was the stain, and chapter 8 was called the approach. And so 
These chapters of the Bible and of the book will be the basis for our discussion today. If you are a new listener to the podcast, welcome. I just want to say feel free uh, just to listen in today. Even if you're not reading, uh, I'm pretty confident you're still going to benefit uh, from our discussion. Right now we're about halfway through uh, Tim Keller's book. So, you know, if you want to join us in our reading, you always could go back and listen to the podcast at your own pace. Or if you want to catch us, if you're a quick reader, you're obviously uh, welcome to do that. You can view our reading schedule under the resources section of my website, amyonthehill.com. But of course, as I said, uh, just feel free to listen in today. Um, even if you're not reading, I still think you're going to, to benefit. Okay, so I'm going to give those of you who have been listening in and participating uh, one guess as to what you think I thought of this re week's reading. Okay, what did you think? What do you think? Do you think I thought it was awesome? <laughs> I did. You're right. Awesome. I loved it again. I love me some Tim Keller. He's so, so good at breaking down truth, dissecting it, considering it, flipping it over, turning it around. I love it. I love, love, love it. And I hope you're loving it too as a compliment to your reading of the Gospel of Mark. Um, I think it's just so helpful that God has given us teachers like Tim Keller to help us process the truths of his word. Uh, it's obviously so important that we read and study the Bible for ourselves, but I don't think we were ever meant to study God's word in a vacuum. We were never meant to just study alone. Otherwise, you know, why would God have called us to gather together? Uh, why would God have given some people, specifically the gift of teaching. Romans 12, 7 says, some people have the gift of teaching. Uh, also in Nehemiah 8, 8, we see that there were people who helped to translate the law of God to give sense so the people understood what they were reading. So there's no shame in us learning from biblically sound teachers uh, who can help us understand things we may not be able to understand on our own. And Tim Keller is clearly one of those teachers for us today. And I'm so thankful for the way God has gifted him and the way God uses him. And I hope his writing has been a blessing to you as well. Okay, so with that, let's get right into our discussion in chapter seven entitled The Stain we consider Jesus's parable that nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it's what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. And I think for me, uh, and maybe some of you, this is interesting, especially right now, because we're in the season of Lent, and some of us are restricting the foods we consume, the media we consume, the things that go into us. But Jesus is saying here that nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it's what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. Isn't that interesting? 
I do want to say, uh, so that no one will misunderstand, and we talked about this a little last week, that there is a tremendous amount of biblical support for regular periods of fasting in our lives. If you're interested uh, in the topic of fasting, or if you're currently fasting for Lent, and you're looking for something to nourish your mind as you abstain uh, from whatever it is you've given up over the next several weeks, I want to highly recommend John Piper's book, A Hunger for God. I'm telling you, uh, if you're at all interested in the topic of fasting, that is your book. Order it today. I personally read that book during a period of fasting, and I'm actually reading it again right now, and I'm telling you, um, in the midst of self-denial, uh, Piper's words can be sweeter than chocolate at times. It's, it's so hard to describe, but I mean that so sincerely. And I actually want to take a minute here, even though it's a bit of a rabbit trail, uh, to read you a portion of the preface of Piper's book, A Hunger for God. And I, I just want to do that to give you a sense for how good it is. And also so that we can understand both Jesus's teaching here that nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him, and also uh, the biblical basis and call to fasting. Okay, so let me read you just a portion of the preface of A Hunger for God. Beware of books on fasting. The Bible is very careful to warn us about people who require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. That's from 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 3. The Apostle Paul asks with dismay, Why do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? That's Colossians 2, verses 20 to 21. He is jealous for the full enjoyment of Christian liberty, like a great declaration of freedom over every book on fasting flies the banner. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. That's 1 Corinthians 8.8. 8. There once were two men. One said, I fast twice a week. The other said, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Only one went down to his house justified. That's Luke 18, verses 12 through 14. The discipline of self-denial is fraught with dangers, perhaps only surpassed by the dangers of indulgence. These also we are warned about. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. That's 1 Corinthians 6, 12. What masters us has become our God, and Paul warns us about those whose God is their belly in Philippians 3.19. Appetite dictates the direction of their lives. The stomach is sovereign. Desires for other things, there's the enemy. And the only weapon that will triumph is a deeper hunger for God. The weakness of our hunger for God is not because he is unsavory, but because we keep ourselves stuffed with other things. Perhaps, then, the denial of our stomach's appetite for food might express or even increase our soul's appetite for God. What we hunger for most, we worship.
we hunger for most, we worship. That is a serious word. And so, again, Jesus, in saying that nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him, was not uh, Jesus abolishing the practice of fasting. Remember, in Mark chapter 2, verse 20, which we read a few weeks ago, Jesus said that our generation would fast. So what Jesus is actually saying here is that we cannot achieve righteousness through strict disciplines and self-denial. We cannot achieve righteousness. We cannot be made clean through what we do externally or through what we do or do not consume. And that doesn't mean that there's no value in fasting. What Jesus is saying is sin and unrighteousness These things are in our hearts. These things are already inside of us. It's not what we are consuming or not consuming. Our hearts are already full of filth. It's who we are inside. And uh, that isn't really flattering, is it? So what do we do with that? How does that make you feel? How do you react to that? Are you offended by that? Do you deny that? Are you surprised by that? Have you never thought of yourself as being full of sin? Are you relieved to hear him acknowledge this? Have you felt that turmoil within? And are you happy to hear Jesus call it out here? Does it give you hope? What do you think? In Mark chapter 7 verses 17 to 19, Jesus explains this parable to his disciples by saying, Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach, and then out of his body. What comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. In reading through that list, uh, you know, you notice that some of these things are very serious. Murder, theft, adultery, you know, we might be tempted to hear those and write this list off like, you know, that that isn't me. But I want you to listen again because Jesus is also addressing evil thoughts like envy. Ever felt jealous of anyone? Slander. Ever talked a little poop on that lady you don't like in the PTA or that neighbor that gets in your nerves? Jesus is calling that out. Jesus addresses arrogance. He calls out Folly. Folly is defined as a lack of good sense, foolishness, a foolish act, idea, or practice. Ever been guilty of folly? And Jesus said, all these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. And Keller explains this by saying, what's really wrong with the world? Why can the world be such a miserable place? Why is there so much strife between nations, races, tribes, classes? Why do relationships tend to fray and fall apart? 
Jesus is saying, we are what's wrong. It's what comes out from the inside. It's the self-centeredness of the human heart. It's sin. Hmm. What do you think of that? What do you think of the idea that the problem comes from inside of us? That the problem is within. If you know me, uh, you probably know that I love Switchfoot, a band called Switchfoot. My husband and I met. We are like total uh, Switchfoot groupies. And there is a song um, Switchfoot wrote, uh, Switchfoot sings, whatever, called War Inside that has some of the best lyrics ever. And so I'm going to read you a clip of those lyrics here. Again, this is Switchfoot's song called The War Inside. Yeah, it's where the fight begins. Yeah, it's underneath the skin, between these hopes and where we've been, every fight comes from the fight within. I am the war inside. I am the battle line. I am the rising tide. I am the war I fight. Eyes open, open wide. I can feel it like a crack in my spine. I can feel it like the back of my mind. I am the war inside. And again, that's basically what Jesus is saying here. We are what's wrong. It's what comes out from the inside. It's the self-centeredness of the human heart. It's sin. Okay, so Jesus taught that the sin inside of us makes us unclean. But our culture doesn't think like this. We don't think it's us. Our culture thinks it's other people, other people who are oppressive, other people who are greedy, other people who are selfish, other people who are racist, other people who are the problem. Or our culture says it's policies. Or as Keller put it, politics. We just need to create better policies and laws and social structures. The problem isn't us. The problem is poor policies. Or our culture says it's pop culture. Keller gave the example of the successful young women's magazine editor, Christina Kelly, who confessed that she believed pop culture is the source of what's wrong. Our feelings of insignificance, the problem that seems to come from within is really attributable to pop culture. So culture says pop culture is the problem. And Keller also gave the examples of even religion and Christian ministry as other ways our culture tries to address our sense of uncleanness through external measures. But unlike our cultural explanations, again, Jesus is saying we are the problem. It's not other people. It's not poor policies. It's not pop culture. It's us. It's me. It's me. It's you. The war is inside. Recently, there was another act of violence. Um, it was sometime in the last three months or so. Uh, the sad thing is I was trying to think about this earlier, and I don't remember the specific details. It seems like we see something like this almost every day lately. So 
I can't remember specifically um, what the issue was, but in the last several months, there was another horrible act, and I was reading a conversation on Facebook between two women, and these women were talking about that incident, and based on what they said and posted, it seemed to me uh, that they were, they believed generally uh, that the solution to preventing terrible things uh, from happening uh, could be established by good policies, by establishing good laws that would make right the wrongs that we all see so commonly in the world today. And and I think that's a lot of people. I think that's, that's even me in a lot of ways. Um, I'm not picking on these ladies. I believe, you know, a lot of good can come from good social policies, from good laws, from good political leaders, uh, from edifying examples in pop culture. These can all have a very positive effect on us and our world. So don't misunderstand me. And I don't want you to misunderstand Keller here either, because I'm sure some certain um, <clears throat> that he would agree with me on that. I don't believe uh, Jesus or Keller is saying that we should entirely uh, disregard external measures that they have no value because of course they have value. But I believe what Keller is saying and I believe what Jesus is teaching is that the only way to get good social policies and good laws, the only way to be able to trust people with political power, the only way pop culture will consistently aim to breathe life rather than strife into the lives of those feeding off of it. The only way we can practice even Christian ministry is to address the unclean and sinful heart within each one of us. And these women on Facebook who are discussing this act of violence eventually started to tap into this reality as well. I was watching their conversation and as, as they were discussing, you know, the possibility of a law or a policy that they hoped would prevent this from happening again. One of the ladies in a state of what seemed to just be sadness and despondency asked the other so genuinely, you know, but what do we do about the evil? What can stop that? And I don't remember how the other woman answered. I just remembered staring at that question because I knew, I just knew she nailed it. She called it out. That was the issue. That's always been the issue. And in that moment, she saw it and she was so grieved by the reality of it because she knew, she knew policies wouldn't save us. Now, what I don't know if she knew, what I doubt she knew, because this takes it to a whole new level, um, is that she herself uh, is a part of the problem. And again, I think the closest that a lot of us are willing to get on this idea that evil uh, is within is, is for us to say, you know, okay, but it's within other people. Other people may be the problem, but we really really struggle to look in the mirror and attribute the problem to something within us. But before God, that's where it is. That's the only place that we as individuals uh, can deal with evil before God. That's where it resides inside each one of us. And that's why we need Jesus. Because our hearts are evil. 
Our hearts are full of evil thoughts, envy, slander, arrogance, even folly. That's why we need a Savior who can redeem us from sin and even save us from ourselves. In Psalm chapter 51, verse 10, David cried out to God, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. In Ezekiel chapter 11, verses 19 through 20 in the New Living Translation, God promises, I will give them singleness of heart and put a new spirit within them. I will take away their stony, stubborn heart and give them a tender, responsive heart so they will obey my decrees and regulations. Then they will truly be my people and I will be their God. Only God can do this for us. And through Christ, he's made a way for us to receive a tender, responsive heart that causes us not to self-protect, not to blame others and deny the sin within ourselves, but instead a heart that grieves in response to our own personal sin, a heart that desires to obey God's decrees, and a heart that lives in submission to God and rests in what he has accomplished through the finished work of Jesus Christ. In the close of chapter 7, Keller wrote, Are you living with a specific failure in your past that you feel guilty about and that you've spent your life trying to make up for? Or perhaps are you not particularly religious, not especially immoral, yet you're fighting that sense of your own inconsequentiality? You might be doing it through religion or politics or beauty. You might even be doing it through Christian ministry. Doing, doing, doing from the outside in. It won't work. Cast your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him, in him alone, gloriously complete. In chapter 8, Uh, entitled The Approach, we considered the biblical account of the Phoenician woman who literally begged Jesus to drive a demon out of her little daughter. And I just want to ask you, uh, does that alarm anyone else? The idea that a demon could plague a little child. Uh, The Bible says this woman's little daughter was possessed by a demon. And those kind of statements in the Bible seem so to us, don't they? But that's what it says here. And again, I've said this in previous podcasts, and I'll say it again. When something in God's word gives you an uncomfortable feeling, if you're weirded out uh, or offended or anything by what the Bible has to say, I just want to encourage you to press into that. Talk to God about that. Don't ignore it or suppress it. Pray about it. Talk to respected Christian friends about it, specifically uh, on the reality of demons or of evil spiritual forces, as crazy as that seems uh, to modern people like us. If you have questions about that, I did talk about this in a previous episode entitled Guilt and Shame Covered, and I want to encourage you to go back and listen to that if you haven't listened to that yet, because again, 
As crazy as it seems to us, the Bible is unambiguous in its teaching that demons are a real and serious threat. So as people of faith, it's not something we want to disregard or ignore, even if it feels like a weird uh, or awkward topic, okay? So again, this Phoenician woman begs Jesus to drive a demon out of her little daughter, but Jesus tells the woman first, let the children eat all they want, for it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. <sighs> okay. I'm just going to be honest about this as well. Reading that, that sounds super rude to me. First of all, we've got a little girl possessed by a demon, uh, which just seems like a very serious, horrific thing in itself. And now Jesus calls this lady and her child basically dogs. And I have to admit, you know, reading passages like this make me squirm a bit. Um, I'm not entirely comfortable uh, with how Jesus is treating this woman and her child. But again, an uncomfortable feeling should make us press into God. It shouldn't cause us to shut down. We want to figure this out. What is God communicating to us here? Why is this in the Bible? What do you think? I think it's interesting that this account comes right after Jesus talks about what defiles a person. Did you notice that? The story of this woman and her child comes right after Jesus lists all of the filthy things in our hearts. And so I think in this account, the reason this is in here is because God just wants us to see this woman. He wants to set this up so that we see this woman's incredible faith after she's been delivered the worst of all possible verdicts when it comes to her standing and her worthiness before God. He wants us to see what Keller described as this woman's rightless assertiveness. And we need to see that because that's exactly what we need in order to embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, as Keller taught us, Martin Luther saw the gospel in this encounter, though she was more wicked then she ever believed at the same time this woman knew she was more loved and accepted than she ever dared to hope. And so she was not too proud to accept what the gospel said about her unworthiness. Keller pointed out in Western cultures um, like ours, we don't have anything like this kind of assertiveness. He said, we only have assertion of our rights. We don't know how to contend unless we're standing up for our rights, standing on our dignity and on our goodness and saying, this is what I'm owed. But this woman is not doing that at all. This is rightless assertiveness, something we know little about. She's not saying, Lord, give me what I deserve on the basis of my goodness. She's saying, give me what I don't deserve on the basis of your goodness, and I need it now. Do you see that? Do you see how this story is placed right after we're basically confronted with the reality that we have no standing in ourselves before God? We aren't worthy. We aren't clean. We can't get clean. 
And God shows us this woman and her response to Jesus, the way she accepts her desperate position. She acknowledges her unworthiness, and yet she unashamedly begs for mercy by appealing to the surplus of God's limitless goodness and provision. And we, too, need both her humility and her assertiveness. Keller says there are two ways we can fail to let Jesus be our Savior, either by being too proud, by being unwilling to see ourselves as desperate, uh, unwilling to acknowledge that we are in an unworthy position before God, or uh, we can be so self-absorbed that essentially uh, we wallow in our guilt and fail to believe that God is good enough to save a sinner as far gone as us. And Keller teaches us that both are a rejection of God, superiority or inferiority. Either one is an obstacle to our receiving God's infinite mercy and grace and love. And so again, like this woman, when we're confronted with our sin before God, when we're aware of our internal filth that cannot be cleansed by us from the outside in, but can only be cleansed by God from the inside out, we need to practice like this woman, rightless assertiveness. Before we close, I want us to briefly look at the account of the deaf man uh, with a speech impediment that we read, Jesus healed in an unusual way. The Bible says in Mark chapter 7, uh, starting with verse 33, uh, that Jesus, taking this man aside from the crowd privately, uh, Jesus put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and he said, Be opened. And his ears were opened. His tongue was released and he spoke plainly. I love how... Keller explains what Jesus is doing here. Keller writes, Well, you might say, well, Jesus is doing the rituals of a miracle worker. Actually, no. Remember that in every miracle we've witnessed, from calming the storm to bringing Jairus' daughter back to life to the healing of the Syrophoenician woman's daughter, there was no arm-waving, no incantation, no mumbo-jumbo. Jesus obviously does not need to perform a ritual in order to summon his power, which means Jesus is doing all this not because he needs it, but because the man needs it. Then Keller uh, goes on to contrast this healing with Jesus's response to the Phoenician woman he even brings up the resurrection of Lazarus, which unsurprisingly, uh, God had us read last week on the podcast. I didn't remember uh, that Keller referenced Lazarus's resurrection in this book when I read that account on the podcast last week. But here, Keller brings that up and he points out 
you know, that if you go back and read the biblical account of Jesus's response to Mary and Martha right before Lazarus's resurrection, you'll see that he responds very differently uh, to the sisters, even though they are in the exact same situation. To Martha, uh, he seems to respond a little uh, harshly in some ways, but to Mary, he's, he's so tender. Uh, and Keller points out that that's because Jesus always gives us exactly what we need individually. And he knows better than you do uh, what that is, because of course he is the wonderful counselor. Uh, so in healing this man the way that he does, Jesus is actually identifying deeply with this man. Keller writes, all the touching of his ears, touching his mouth, it's sign language. He comes into the man's cognitive world and uses terms, nonverbal speech, that he can understand. And in our individual lives, he's doing that as well. He's meeting us where we are, showing us how much we need him, and asking us to follow him away from the crowd to the place where he can address the helpless estate of our souls. Whether he addresses us harshly or tenderly will depend on what we individually need to hear. And in his love for us, that's the way he'll deliver it. Sometimes he's emphatically direct. Other times he's tender. Sometimes he's obvious. Other times he's subtle. But always, always, always our God is good. He's always loving and he's always inviting us to appeal to his surplus of limitless goodness and provision through the finished work of Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay, so next week we're going to read uh, chapters 9 and 10 of Tim Keller's book, Jesus the King. And out of the Bible, we're going to be in Mark chapters 8 and 9. Again, that's chapters 9 and 10 out of Jesus the King and chapters 8 and 9 out of the book of Mark. As always, if at any point you forget what we're scheduled to read this week, you can always check it out under the resources section of my website, amyonthehill.com. Also, if you want to reach me with a question or comment about our reading this week, you can do that on social media or through my website. Uh, one friend wrote me this week to tell me that the waiting chapter from last week really spoke to her. She said that during uh, our podcast discussion, Jerry Bridges' observation and trusting God really also uh, struck a chord. If we want to live less stressful lives, we must learn to live with a single agenda, God's agenda. We tend to live under two agendas, ours and God's, and the tension between them sets up stress. My friend wrote, God definitely put my faith and trust in him and continues to do so. I love when you mentioned we have less stress when we put the timing in God's hands. I also heard from a friend who is really sensing uh, that God is asking her to trust him and be patient. And uh, hearing from you and how God is working in your life is such an encouragement to me. And so I just want to thank thank you for that. And I want you to know that I'm praying for all of you. Um, 
I, I know I don't know every person that's listening in, but I want you to know that I'm praying that God is working in your life. I'm praying that you are praying bold prayers. I'm praying that you're asking God questions you've never asked him before. I'm praying that you allow God to challenge you and direct you and care for you where you need to be nurtured. Uh, I also want to say that I appreciate your prayers for me as well. So if you're praying for me, thank you. I've been able to sense a powerful working of God's spirit lately, and it's really pretty amazing. So whoever you are out there, thank you so much for your prayers. Please, please keep them coming. As we close, uh, I'm again going to speak over you a benediction from Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 through 26. Please don't tune this out. I know we do this every week, but please quiet your heart and receive this as a personal blessing over your life. Again, this is Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 through 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Peace.